Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of the Oxford Journal Global Summetry. We are today going to continue our series, Shaking the Global Order, U.S. Foreign Policy in the Age of Trump. It's my real pleasure to be introducing one of my colleagues, Dan Dudenyi. He teaches international relations and political science more generally at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Dan has had quite a, an eclectic career, but he's had real interest and has worked in areas such as nuclear energy and nuclear weapons, outer space, environment, and energy more generally. He's worked on the Hill in Washington, and he's worked for a number of think tanks as well. His most recent research has been in the area called Dark Skies, Space Expansion, and Planetary Geopolitics. But we won't be talking about outer space today. In fact, we'll be dividing Dan's interview into two parts. And this first part that we're looking at will focus Dan's attention on Trump and trade policy, trade policy protectionism, and also the Trump policy with respect to climate change and environment and its impact in terms of the international system and the Paris Agreement. Welcome, Dan, to uh, this podcast on American foreign policy in the age of Trump. So, Dan, um, I wanted to start by referencing an article that you and, and your colleague, John Eikenberry, wrote right at the early uh, development of the presidential election season. That would be in March uh, 216. Uh, you wrote a piece, the two of you wrote a piece, in American Interest called Unraveling uh, America the Great. And at that time, you, you saw in the piece uh, that Franklin Roosevelt, as the two of you wrote about it, he is kind of the anchor to the American century. And you saw it both in domestic policy and U.S. foreign policy. And I guess the question and what, what you describe is a relatively bipartisan period of, of president following president. Uh, what you called uh, a kind of centrist internationalism. And so I, I wondered if you could explain a little bit how you saw its creation and the development of what we've now come to call the liberal order. Well, the crisis of the Great Depression uh, and the World War, uh, the Second World War, were obviously catalytic in creating the political conditions uh, for the creation of both a domestic New Deal order uh, and post-World War II order that was started in 1945. And in many ways, it was in the total run of American history, you know, a very uh, anomalous period. Uh, and, and we point out that the New Deal and the emergence and role of the United States as a global power uh, during this period were really in response to the challenges posed by the Industrial Revolution, both domestically and internationally. 
that domestically, the great machine uh, that had been assembled by capitalist uh, and government entrepreneurship you know, across the previous decades needed to have some calibration with regard to the overall governance arrangements or else it wasn't going to work. So the, the problems that were being responded to uh, were problems that uh, stemmed from, that emerged from the great transformation uh, in the economy and pretty much everything else in the country that had been produced by industrialism. And so we don't see the New Deal as a break with um, American governance traditions, but rather as an adaptation of the fundamental logics of the founding reiterated uh, by the Union, by Lincoln during the Civil War, this approach being applied, being updated in its application due to the new uh, circumstances. Mm -hmm. uh, and similarly, with regard to the international domain, the change wasn't that the United States decided it wanted to do something differently. It was that the, the world had changed. Uh, and the great moat of the Atlantic Ocean, which has, had provided large degree of security through the first century or so of the Republic's existence, no longer was going to be able to play that role. Uh, the United States was basically now much more inherently interactive with the rest of the world and was much more potentially vulnerable. And so it was in response to that change uh, in the underlying material circumstances of the United States and the international system and prodded by the, uh, the all too real uh, lesson of the Second World War, the United States then moved uh, during the late 1940s, early 1950s to erect uh, these international institutions uh, that we have come to know as the liberal international order. It's important to emphasize though that this was always contested. Uh, there was always opposition to this in the United States. Uh, it required uh, very competent leadership, Truman and uh, of Eisenhower, both of them playing key roles in deflecting very strong opposition to this new internationalist posture. Uh, and the, the opposition ne has never gone away. It has just been pushed to the side and of course, we now see in many ways that it's coming back in a very virulent form. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you recognized it as, a, you know, kind of a, a series of presidents that largely had bipartisan support, notwithstanding that, you've, as you just pointed out, there was opposition. You saw that that bipartisan foreign policy in the article, you noted, it was, it was fragmenting, it was coming apart. Uh, there were increasing challenges. But you, interestingly, and just as a follow-up on the domestic side, that, in fact, you saw the challenges really coming from the ultra-conservatives. Yet, we get this election of Donald Trump, and uh, how did that come about? Well, uh, that's the question, of course, that a great many people have been attempting to come to grips with. Um, it, it was very surprising as it unfolded, but in retrospect, it doesn't look quite as surprising. Uh, to start with, you know, this was kind of a perfect storm situation in that uh, the Democratic candidate, Hillary Clinton, was, I, I, would, I would judge her to be the worst Democratic 
uh, presidential nominee in uh, my lifetime, certainly. Certainly down there with Michael Dukakis in terms of her her overall political savvy and the way in which she ran the campaign. Mm -hmm. Uh, She she was a perfect embodiment uh, for... um, the line that there was this corrupt elite and the, the characterization that Trump tagged her with, crooked Hillary, you know, seemed all too real to a lot of people. She uh, and Bill, in the year since they had left the White House, uh, had made a reported income of $139 million. Uh, this foundation, so-called, that they set up was uh, easily characterized as a pay-to-play scheme. And then there were all of these smoldering semi, are they scandals? Are they improprieties? One can never really nail it down. Uh, People always have baggage, but the Clintons had a baggage train, uh, at least some parts of which were always sort of smoldering and smoking. And then they made uh, incredibly inept decisions with regard to where they campaigned and uh, the type of message they advanced. She did not in any way effectively convey a positive vision of where she wanted to take the country. And while the policy proposals that the Democrats adhere to uh, might actually be a, a positive vision that would actually address many of these problems, she did not make any sort of effort to really convey that. She basically ran on, I'm a woman, it's time for a woman, Donald Trump is a despicable guy, who could ever elect this guy president? Uh, And those two arguments just didn't pull her through. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, you know, 77,000 votes in four states shifting and she would be in the White House now. Uh, She actually won the popular vote by what, 2.7 million votes. Um, So it was a close run thing, but it was massively bungled on her side, on the Democrat side. Hmm. Uh, And and let me also say that Trump, uh, while he is uh, profoundly ignorant and in many ways a a very despicable and reprehensible uh, character, he is a brilliant demagogue. And he had been, in effect, Uh, pre-running for president for a number of years, both with his birther uh, narrative, the claim that Barack Obama was not born in the United States, and also his role on this celebrity uh, TV show, The Apprentice. So he was, in terms of the mastery of the new media environment, was way ahead in important ways of any of the other candidates. They just didn't fully realize the extent to which the fundamental presentational nature of the game was shifting. Mm -hmm. And and another point that should always be underscored with this and about the right and about the conservatives and about the Trump constituency, many people in the establishment Republican Party were kind of amazed and dazed by the fact that Trump kept winning these primary contests. from the very beginning of of his entry into the race, he was leading in the polls of Republican primary voters. Uh, And they're scratching their heads. How did this happen? The answer is extremely simple, which is that the Trump electorate had been created over the last decade or so, and really even going back earlier with radio, by Fox News and by the network 
of demagogic uh, right-wing hate radio announcers such as Rush Limbaugh and the internet version of that, people like Stephen Bannon. So a third of the country has been living in this informational bubble that has been created by these very artful weavers of demagogic narratives of grievance. And that, that was the core of the Trump electorate. And so Trump basically went out on the campaign trail and started saying in very raw form the types of things that Fox News and the Limbaugh and company and Bannon and company had been saying in a saturation mode for this audience. And so not surprisingly, the audience uh, responds positively. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, let's turn then uh, to uh, a bit of the demagogue, and you've identified it as now the president of the United States. Um, clearly one of the most uh, vociferous um, attacks he brought was against the U.S. trade agreements. He, he was vicious when he mentioned the various trade agreements, NAFTA, which is the North American trade arrangement with Mexico and the United States, the WTO, and in particular, the, the agreement to bring China into the WTO in the early part of the 21st century here. And, and then, of course, the very recently, at that point, negotiated, completed negotiation on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which, as you know, he immediately withdrew. But looking at, uh, you know, particularly NAFTA and the WTO with respect to China, let's look at China. Uh, recent events, his people did announce, uh, you know, a more formal renegotiation of NAFTA. He obviously discussed trade with uh, Xi Jinping at Mar-a-Lago uh, recently. Uh, and one of the things, one of the main attacks he had, a little bit more over in the economic side, which was his assertion repeatedly that China was a currency manipulator, and yet he identified that he was not going to uh, name China a currency manipulator, though he had said, day one, we're going to announce that uh, China is a currency manipulator. So what, what does this all tell us about uh, Trump trade policy now? Well, whenever the two words Trump and policy are uh, joined together, one should recognize that the relationship is a highly uh, vexed one. And it's like bringing nitro and glycerin together. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's got explosive potential in that Trump is profoundly ignorant uh, about basic facts. Uh, and it, it's not that his mind, David Brooks recently acutely pointed out, is empty. It's rather that it's filled with gross errors. And so when we speak of Trump and policy, it's not entirely clear that he really has any kind of policy. He has instincts, he has impulses, most of which are bad, all of which are uninformed. And so what he said during the campaign mm -hmm. and what he's going to do what he's going to try and do as president 
have at best ephemeral tangential relationship with one another. Mm -hmm. uh, and the fact that he has been so detached from actual realities and is so keen on having public approval means that he has a high degree of flexibility. We've already seen the degree to which, uh, on the case of Syria, he's basically reversed 180 degrees from the position that he had in the campaign and doesn't seem to see this as problematic. Mm -hmm. And so th there's going to be a, a deeply unpredictable and erratic character to the policies and activities of the United States government during the period in which Trump is president. Now, focusing specifically on trade, the narrative that Trump laid out in the campaign is in many ways based on fantasy. The reason that there's so much unemployment in former manufacturing uh, sector jobs is about 80% because of automation, because mm -hmm. of you know, retooling capital to make uh, less labor-intensive production. And insofar as there are people in the United States who have been dislocated by trade, the reason that they are disgruntled, understandably so, is that there were no measures put into place to retrain them, to move them into other employment uh, possibilities. It, it, uh, the United States is not nearly as exposed as a percentage of GDP to trade as many other countries are, Canada, uh, most of the countries in Europe. But nevertheless, Americans are much less supportive of free trade than people who are in countries like Canada or in Europe that have much more extensive exposure to trade. And the main difference is that there is a social safety net and a robust system of worker retraining. Now, you go back and look at the debates about free trade, the accession to the WTO by China, the NAFTA agreement, and so forth. These were, to a first approximation, Republican Party initiatives. Right? This is the business community, mm -hmm. which is dominant in Republican Party economic policy, acting to advance free trade. The posture of the Democratic Party towards these agreements was much more divided. Half the party roughly was opposed and ultimately voted against these agreements. The other half of the party came on board in exchange for programs for worker retraining. That was the deal. That was the package. Then when we come to the implementation, that part gets dropped out. Why? Because the Republicans in the business community and in Congress view this as another unnecessary and too expensive government program. So the Republican Party has been the prime driver of this most recent wave of economic uh, so-called liberalization. And the deal that would have helped the people that are disgruntled now and, and many voting for Trump was basically undone by the Republicans.
So these disgruntled workers who are opposed to international trade now much more generally, they are very, very much the product of the Republican policies that uh, have been dominant with regard to trade. They were short-sighted, we now see, for their own objectives because they've created this powerful constituency that is in oppositional to these uh, measures. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned a couple ideas here, so let me explore each in turn. One, you talked about his, uh, and this is coming from David Brooks, as you pointed out in the New York Times, his gross errors with respect to policy. Let me direct you then to another uh, area of policymaking, and this is on the environmental front, the climate change front. Um, Trump, as candidate, of course, dramatically emphasizes the coal industry and asserts his determination to create energy independence. Are the uh, American commitments that were made previously, a previous administration, with respect to carbon emission and carbon emission reduction and agreements put in place at the time of the Paris Agreement, are they now you know, at an end, out the window, in effect, because of this coal focus of, of Trump? Well, in many ways, the most uh, consequential steps that Trump has taken so far, at least with regard to letter policy, letter law policy, have been in the domain of environment. Mm -hmm. uh, and here he has been able to move very quickly, in part because Obama had had to rely upon executive orders that interpreted components of previous legislation. The Clean Air Act uh, didn't explicitly mention uh, climate change or carbon dioxide emissions, but did have broad authorities uh, for the EPA to regulate emissions that were harmful. And so the administration went through an elaborate uh, series of reviews and hearings for finding of endangerment uh, of harm coming from these carbon emissions, and then issued regulations under the authority of the Clean Air Act to start moving away from carbon-based uh, electricity production. So it was very easy for Trump to come in and with the mere signature on an executive order undo this. And the reason that there was a, uh, a policy cadre of, of, of actors eager and willing to do this is because these are the people that industry, or at least large parts of industry, uh, and the ideological anti-governmental wing of the Republican Party have been nurturing for uh, many years. They're now in control of the EPA. So that's the bad news. Now, the good news, at least so far, is there has not been a formal renunciation of the commitment under the uh, Paris Accord. Now, there is apparently a great deal of controversy about this inside the Trump administration. And, uh, you know, the courtier politics with this bunch is going to be a drama of uh, uh, vivid uh, and shifting character. And there are actors uh, within the inner circle who do not want him to explicitly denounce. And insofar as he is trying now to get uh, on somewhat better terms with some of our allies that he initially 
thought he could dispense with and insult, uh, he's certainly hearing very strong statements to not leave the Paris Accords. So that's good news that ter may turn any day into bad news. But the third point, and it's really the most important news, is that the transition away from coal and the transition to higher efficiency and to renewables is robustly underway in the United States. Uh, large sectors of industry have uh, bought into this, uh, ha have understood the basic facts about the planetary peril and the disaster that will ensue unless we act, and they have started to move. They are making, they've made commitments, uh, and that is not going to change. Similarly, we have local and state governments uh, where much of the action with regard to decarbonization has been occurring. And there too, we don't see any diminution of effort. Indeed, we see uh, resolutions to redouble efforts. And we also have uh, a very powerful tailwind uh, assisting decarbonization, at least with regard to coal, from the economics of natural gas at this point in this country. Uh, utilities are moving away from coal uh, significantly because natural gas is cheaper. And so there really isn't anything that the Trump administration has done and is likely to be able to do that's going to significantly alter the decline of coal in the United States or the rise of renewables. Now, this is not to paint a rosy picture of this. We need to be doing more. We need to be redoubling our efforts. Uh, the, the science, which continues to be updated, is uh, telling us more and more that we have been underestimating the speed uh, and extent to which we're going to start having major change, particularly sea level rise. And people are um, behind the curve in many ways with regard to this. And let me finally say, uh, with regard to the Trump administration and climate change, that there is a broad assault on science. Uh, the science budgets, you know, have been slashed. Uh, the National Endowment, uh, National Institute of Health, Center for Disease Control, the so-called budget that they have promulgated, uh, it's a blueprint for cuts, wants 18% cuts there. Uh, NASA, which plays an important role in supporting climate science uh, with satellites, the Trump proposal is basically to zero that out, uh, to basically end these NASA satellite uh, missions in support of gaining knowledge about uh, Earth systems. This is the Trump administration proposal. The question is what is going to happen when it comes to Congress. And I don't mean to be... Uh, unrealistically optimistic, but I am skeptical that the Trump administration is going to be able to prevail on cuts in basic science in this country to anything like the degree that they think they are. This Global Symmetry podcast was hosted by Alan Alexandrov, Produced by Harmony Z. Music by Kevin McLeod. For more information, check out 
globalsymmetryproject.com.